0: Most Holy Father, we are incredibly thankful to have access to your holy scriptures that have been passed down generation after generation to your people that have your breath in them. That These authors were carried along by your Holy Spirit. That these scriptures teach us who you are and reveal to us your plan of redemption and how, Father, it has always been in your heart and in your mind and in your will and in your plans to bring about the salvation of mankind through your son, Jesus. And Father, we thank you for unfolding that great mystery and ministry to us and for us. And Father, thank you for allowing us to be part of that story through Jesus. Thank you, Father, for allowing your spirit to dwell in us, that we might collectively be your temple. And Father, help us to learn from the successes and the faith and the failures and the mistakes of those who went before us. Father, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and for us to realize and to hold fast to the truth that it has always been about him. Father, we thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good evening, everybody. Thank you, as always, for being part of our Wednesday night Bible study, whether you're here in person or watching online. I think I've set up my phone correctly so that those that are trying to watch online can watch online. So far, we've had like five weeks of this class and I've messed it up more times than I've gotten it right. So I apologize to our online folks, but hopefully it's set up Correctly tonight. But as always, thank you for taking time out of your busy week to be here on a Wednesday night or to watch online uh, to be part of this uh, discussion, conversation, Bible study about the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, everything before Jesus, and how this story was always leading to the Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed one who would bring salvation. So we've been Walking through sort of an outline that, that I've kind of picked out 11 points on a map, sort of or on a timeline that we might look at and say, these are 11 points of, of history uh, that together make up the story of the Hebrew Scriptures. So what was the first one? Remember? Chosen, chosen right? Chosen. That Abraham and then his seed were chosen. Uh, seed seems to indicate his descendants, plural, but as the story progresses, we realize it really was always about a singular seed, that being Jesus, the Christ. Okay, so chosen uh, to liberated. Sorry, I didn't let you answer that one. Liberated, uh, (laughs) that God freed his people, saved his people, rescued his people, redeemed his people from slavery, brought them out and freed them, and how we should hear salvation, redemption, Uh, liberation, freedom. We should hear them ringing the same song as the Exodus story. What was the third one? Wandering, right? They were wandering in the wilderness uh, for how long? 40 years, right? Why? They didn't have faith. They didn't obey. They didn't trust God. They didn't believe the truth that God was with them, that God was delivering them, that the same God who brought them out of Egypt would bring them into the promised land. Fourth, victorious. That's the one we talked about last week, isn't it? Victorious. We talked about the the conquest of Canaan, the people right on the edge of the promised land. We, We talked about the book of Deuteronomy, and what does Deuteronomy mean? Second law, good, second law. So it's the second giving of the law, the reminder of the law for the new generation. First generation died off in the wilderness. Second generation gets a reminder. This This is the covenant that God made with us. Not because we're awesome, but because he is. Not because we're good, but because he is. Not because we're strong, but because he is. And he picked us. He chose us. And so here's the, here's the law. Here's the stipulations, the rules, the boundaries for keeping covenant with God. We talked about how it was very relational, how the chief command of Deuteronomy was what? Starts with L. Love. Love, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. Love God love God and love loving God looks like obedience doesn't it it looks like trust it looks like faithfulness we can't separate those things out and say well I love God but I don't really obey him (laughs) that's not how it works right any more than a spouse could say well I love my wife or I love my husband but I'm not really faithful to them no that that would that would mean you don't love them loving God looks like being faithful to him. It looks like trusting him. It looks like obeying him and keeping covenant with him. Now, as they went into the promised land, who led them into the promised land? Joshua, whose name means Yahweh is salvation. And and a shortened version of that is Jesus, right? Yahweh is salvation. God God is salvation. And so, Yeshua, Yeshua, Yeshua leads them, Joshua leads them into the promised land. Yahweh delivers them into the promised land and the people run away before them or fall before them because God is with them. God is with them and when they trust him and they obey him, the people are no match for them. A thousand men are no match for one Israelite because God is with them. When they obey, when they trust, when they believe in love, cling to Yahweh, and God delivers the land into their hands. Now, Joshua gets older, and we talked about that at the end of last week's lesson, and are there still people that need to be driven out? Yes, and God says, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. I'll continue to drive them out if if you keep covenant with me, if you trust me, if you love me, if you obey me, if you're faithful to me, I'll continue to drive them out just as I did before. Now, we already said, spoiler alert, do do they continue to trust and love and obey and are faithful? No, they're not. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And we're calling this period of time lawless. This is the period of the judges. That's what we'll talk about tonight, lawless. Next week, we'll talk about, the next one is ruled, ruled, that they have a ruler over them. They want a king and that king's name is Saul and doesn't turn out to be all that they hoped for, but we'll talk about that later. Uh, So ruled and then the kingdom is United. united, followed by a period of divided. And then after they're divided, not too long after that, they are exiled. And then after they're exiled to Babylon and Assyria before that, Eventually they returned. So they had, there's a period of return. But the promised land isn't quite the promised land still, is it? And so it's a period of waiting, waiting, a period of waiting. Okay, so we'll talk about all of those things in, in time if the Lord wills. Okay, let's get to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now again, this is, this is a, a generation that has, has grown up in the wilderness And then they've come into the promised land. The older ones have seen God deliver, have seen God deliver the the land into their hands. But that generation, the generation of Joshua is all dying out. And now this is like a third generation after the, the deliverance from Egypt. And so now here's what the Lord says to them. Verse one, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and what? Wept. In fact, I think that's a great word for this whole book, wept, wept. If you read the book of Judges and you don't weep, you're not reading it right. And when I was a young person, I used to read the book of Judges and I wasn't reading it right because I thought it was cool. (laughs) I thought it was super cool because there were like tent pegs getting driven in people's heads. There were swords getting stabbed into fat people's bellies. I mean, there's all kinds of blood and gore. And when I was a teenage boy, I thought that was super cool. I thought that was the coolest book in the Old Testament. And I was so wrong. Because death and violence is never cool. This is a book that should make us weep. A book where there really are very few, if any, good guys. A book that leaves us wondering which direction is up. What's right? What's wrong? Who's right? Who's wrong? What am I supposed to do with all of this? And I think the answer is weep over it. Because this is what humanity can do to itself. In fact, this is what God's people can do to themselves and to others. When we'll, we'll talk about why and, and how that comes to be. But but look at this passage right here. He says that the people of Canaan will become like what? Thorns. Thorns in your sight. And What does that bring to your mind? I mean, think about what, what Canaan was supposed to be. We, we've compared it. Over the last few weeks to what? Coming into the promised land was kind of like coming back to what? The Garden of Eden, right? It's this land flowing with milk and honey. It's this paradise. It's supposed to be a paradise, a place where God is going to dwell with his people. No more wandering in the wilderness. Now coming into this paradise of God, like coming back into the Garden of Eden. But now, because of their disobedience because they tried to do what was right in their own eyes, now there are what in the garden? Thorns. Does this remind you of the curse of Genesis chapter 3 when God cursed the land because of man's sin? Then, Then the land produced thorns, and it's going to be hard. You're still going to have to obey me. You're still going to have to work. You're still going to have to do what I've called you to do, but now it's going to be much more difficult. It's not going to be easy like it was going to be before. This is not going to be a paradise like it was before. So already in the story, already in the story, what could have been, what should have been has already fallen short. Why? Because God breaks his promises? No, in fact, God is holding on to them in spite of everything. I'm going to keep my promises to y'all, whether you like it or not. I'm going to hold on to you. And somehow Israel holds on to God through it all. But because of their disobedience, the struggle is so much more painful than it should have been, than it needed to have been. And so now, now they are going to have to deal with the curse, with with the thorns. And really, as you continue on in the story of the Hebrew scriptures, as you continue to follow Israel's story, when the prophets would say that they were going to go off into exile, this idea of thorns it keeps coming up. In fact, one of the one of the common pictures or themes, as it pertains to punishment, usually has to do with, in fact. if if you've ever seen a post-apocalyptic movie, you've seen post-apocalyptic movies, there's a movie with Will Smith called I Am Legend. And and in the beginning of the movie, he's driving a sports car through New York York City and New York City is totally desolate and he's chasing a deer through the streets of New York because he's the only living person in New York. And so everything is overgrown. There's trees everywhere, there's weeds everywhere, there's wild animals everywhere. That's exactly the picture that the prophets would tell the people: Your cities are going to become a wasteland. It's going to become chaos. What was settled, what was civilized, what was a city, what was peaceful is going to become chaotic. It's going to become overgrown with weeds. You, you've seen this on a small scale in your own garden, right? When when you leave your garden to itself, to its own devices. What was beautiful and wonderful and flourishing can become over, overrun with weeds and then it becomes chaos. So what should have been a beautiful garden is now overrun with with weeds and thorns and thistles. And, and that's exactly the consequences of sin. God wants to bring peace, beauty, flourishing, order, and then people sin and it brings chaos and disorder. And we sort of break down what God has created. Look at verse 10 of chapter two. And all that generation, that older generation, the generation of Joshua, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Again, is this relational language? Of course it is. These are the people that God has chosen to love. He thinks of them like a father thinks of their child. He thinks of them like a husband thinks of his wife. I love you. I chose you. I could have chosen anyone and I chose you, not because you're strong, not because you're beautiful, not because you're good, but because I am and I picked you and I cleaned you up and I made you into something beautiful and wonderful. And I, all I asked of you is that you love me back. Is that too much to ask? Is it? No. Just be faithful to me. Love me. Cling to me. And instead, they go after all of the other gods. This is why God told them to drive out the people. It wasn't because God hated those other people. It's because everybody worships something. Everybody worships something. And if we don't worship God, we'll worship something else. And when we worship something else, it dehumanizes us, doesn't it? We become less than we were created to be because we were created to image, to be an image bearer, to reflect the image of the God we worship. And so when we worship a created thing, we are reflecting something less than we were supposed to reflect. We are becoming something less than we were supposed to be. We are becoming corrupted. And God wants to rid his creation of that corruption. And so God plants these people here in Israel and shows them how to grow and how to flourish and how to be what they were created to be. But instead of worshiping him and reflecting his image back into the world, they worship created things and they reflect a deformed, a corrupted image into the world. And they were distorted in the process. And that's what this whole book is about, is to show us the distortion that happens When we worship something other than God, we become distorted image bearers. Look at verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Pay attention to those phrases. Gave them over sold them into, we could read these kinds of passages in a couple of different ways. I suppose some people read this and think God is vindictive. God, I've even heard people make claims like thinking that the God of, quote unquote, the Old Testament, as if there's a difference, but the God of the Old Testament is petty. But if you really read the story, is he being petty? Or is he simply giving people what they asked for? They said, we don't want you to be our provider. We don't want you to be our protector. We want to give our loyalty and allegiance to these other gods. And God said, okay, see how that works out for you. I mean, to a degree, we do that with our children, don't we? I mean, we have to do that at some point with our kids, don't we? Depending on the severity of it. We have to say, okay, if you're going to pursue something I told you not to do, then then at some point I have to allow you to suffer the consequences of your own behavior so that you learn, so that you don't do that anymore, so that you come back and you say, okay, I was wrong. I should have listened to you. I should have obeyed. And that's what God is doing. God God isn't directly punishing them. It's more of an indirect punishment if you want to get down to it, isn't it? That he's saying, okay, okay. You, you don't want to be under my wings of protection. You don't want to live in my house. You want to live out there. I mean, my kids have even threatened to run away a time or two. And I always call their bluff. I don't know about you, but I always say, okay, you know, if you want to run away, I guess, you know, let me know how that works out for you. But I, I don't think you're going to make it very far, right? But that's the thing. They want to run away from God and God allows them to. As we've said since the very beginning, that's what Deuteronomy is all about. You have a choice, life or death. (laughs) Trust me and live under my protection. Let me cause you to flourish and blossom or don't. It's your choice. And if you trust these pieces of rock and stone and, and metal and wood to protect you, then you're going to be overrun by your enemies. That's what's going to happen. Because that's what happens. You're going to die. If you don't trust me to protect you and provide for you, if you don't live as my spouse, then then this is what is going to happen. He surrenders them, gives them over to that because like an unfaithful spouse or child, he's allowing them to have what they're asking for. Verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges for they, strong word here, for they hoard after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Now, first of all, God says, okay, you don't want to live under my protection anymore. Fine. Don't live under my protection. Then the enemies come, they overtake them, they begin to devour them, and the people are distressed and they cry out to God. And what does God do? Raises up a a savior, a deliverer, a judge, not a judge like we tend to think of in a long black robe, you know, with a gavel kind of a thing, but someone to bring about his justice, to bring justice for the oppressed. And in this case, His people who are being oppressed, yes, it was their fault they're being oppressed, but they're still being oppressed. And God's justice, see, sometimes we think about justice as just getting what you deserve, not with God. God's justice is, yes, it's fair. And yes, sometimes that means people being punished, but God's justice is merciful. God's justice takes pity on people. God's justice is gracious. God's justice is long-suffering, and aren't we glad? Aren't we glad that that's what God's justice looks like? So when he raises up a judge, it's not just to punish. It's a judge to bring the people who have, you know, starting to learn their lesson and saying, God, please help us, and God says, okay, I'll help you, sends a judge, brings them up, tries to teach them, okay, next time, let's not do this again, let's not get back into this shape, and what do they do every time? back repeating the same thing, going back to their sin, going back to their idolatry, whoring after other gods. And again, we have to read this story with that mentality. As ugly as that is, the Lord wants us to see how much he loves his people and the way it feels. See, I think sometimes I grew up Maybe disconnecting Bible study with my feelings and thinking feelings, oh, that's, that's not what I should engage when I study the Bible. It absolutely is sometimes. God not only wants us to think about this, he wants us to feel about it. And maybe this, this might touch on a very personal chord for you. Maybe you've experienced or maybe you've been an unfaithful spouse maybe, chances are, all of us have known an unfaithful spouse. And we've experienced how bad that destroys and disrupts a family. But this even goes beyond just unfaithful. He calls Israel a whore. She is selling herself. As if a husband married a wife and wants to live happily ever after and have this faithful covenant relationship with one another, and she goes out and sells her body to other men. The way a husband would feel about that betrayal, that's how God feels about Israel. Only unlike any other man I've ever met, after every single time she continues to whore herself out, continues to sell her body, God continues to buy her back, redeem her. Why? You you. That's why. Because he knew that you were coming, that we were coming, that Jesus was coming, and that through Jesus, he was going to redeem the whole world. And he picked this people and whore as they might, prostitute themselves as they might, he was committed to fulfilling his promises through this group of people. And so he holds on to them. Man, Aren't we glad that's the kind of God he is who is so committed to fulfilling his promises? He is so committed to his will being done that he is not going to let go. He is tenacious. Now, that doesn't mean that every single person in there gets to be saved. Well, I'm part of God's people, so I can't be lost. Wrong, wrong. There were generations of people that were lost because of how unfaithful they were. But God was committed for the long haul. God had this big picture in mind and it tore his heart out every time his people were unfaithful. And again, this is a lesson for us. This is is how God feels about us collectively, his people, and whether or not we are faithful to him and trust him and give our allegiance to him. The same way, and again, this this touches on, I could spend a lot of time on this. Be careful, I'm not going off on a rabbit trail, but this touches on the fears that we have. When we say things like, I'm so afraid X, Y, and Z is going to happen in the world, or I'm so afraid that this is going to happen or that is going to happen. Think about how a husband who is a good provider and a good protector would feel about his wife always saying that? How would I feel about myself or my relationship with my wife if she was always telling me, I'm afraid we're gonna be out on the streets next week. I'm afraid we're just going to, we're not gonna have enough money to eat. We're gonna be, you know, people are just gonna come in our house. What if people just come in our house and take our stuff? People are gonna take advantage of us. People are gonna hurt us. There's bad people all around. And I'd say, what, what am I, chopped liver? What do you We think I'm here for, right? Do you not trust me that I'm going to take care of you? How much more so the all-powerful, ever-present, all-knowing God of the universe swears to you, makes a covenant with you, you're my people. And if we're living in this constant state of fear, oh no, what's going to happen with this and what's going to happen with that and everything's going to fall apart and where's the world going? If we're constantly in that state, How does God feel about that? And if we're giving our allegiance and our loyalty to other protectors and other providers because we don't trust him enough, how do you think God feels about that? The same way I would feel if my wife said, yes, Wes, I love you, but my next door neighbor, he's a better protector and provider. Uh Uh-uh, that's not okay, is it? God wants us to feel this, to know he cares Whether or not you love and trust him, whether or not you will be faithful to him, regardless of what things look like, regardless of how bad the situation seems, do you believe that you are his people? Because the second we stop believing that and we say, I don't know, I think maybe this rock would make a better provider for me. I don't know. I think maybe this statue of gold would make a better uh, protector for me. We do that. Humanity does that and it corrupts everything. Verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. They were what? More corrupt than their fathers. They were more corrupt than their fathers. Just when you think the story can't get any worse, guess what? It does. They get more corrupt than their fathers. Going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them, they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. The book of Judges is a downward spiral. Every story gets a little bit worse than the last. If you want to outline the book of Judges, that's how you outline it. You outline it like a downward spiral. This story keeps spiraling worse and worse and worse and worse. And you think, how could these people get any worse? And then you are reminded, this is what humanity does when they don't worship God. When we worship anything else, anything else, even if we try to worship both, oh, I worship God still, but I also want to worship this thing. I also want to love this thing. I also want to give my loyalty to this thing then you begin to reflect that thing and you corrupt yourself and everything that you do. Verse 20, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the ways of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hands of Joshua. Again, they remain as thorns in their side. What was supposed to be a beautiful paradise garden has now become overrun with thorns. And so this whole book leaves us wondering who will ultimately deliver us from this. But it's not just Israel, because what was supposed to be this special nation really just becomes like everybody else. And that's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. But if the salt loses its saltiness, what good is it? Israel was supposed to be the salt of the earth. They were supposed to be the light of the world. But they became like everybody else. They worshiped what everybody else worshiped. They did what everyone else did. And they became like everyone else. So the question becomes, who's gonna be the ultimate judge The world needs an ultimate judge. Uh, The world needs an ultimate savior and deliverer to break us out of this downward spiral. Some of the repeated phrases in the book of Judges, some of you may, may know a few of these. One of the most repeated phrases is this, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And that phrase, that way of putting it is so important. Because it's God's sight that really matters, right? Because God sees things for what they really are. We have a way of deceiving ourselves. God sees good and evil, right and wrong. Humanity doesn't. Uh, Another phrase that's often repeated four times, no king in Israel. There was no king in Israel. So the, the writer of Judges is kind of pointing us forward to something, isn't he? That, that maybe there needs to be a king in Israel. Although when they finally get a king, is that king what they were hoping for? No, because he was just like the rest of them. And every judge that, that comes up, in fact, in a downward spiral kind of way, even the judges themselves, the rulers themselves, the deliverers themselves, are kind of a reflection of the people. And they're corrupt as well. And then finally, uh, twice, Everyone did what was right in his own, what? Eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Chaos, right? Chaos, that's what chaos is, right? Chaos isn't when everybody does what is wrong. I don't know of any society where everybody does what they think is wrong. Very few people do what they think is wrong. You can't hardly live a life like that where you think this is probably a wrong thing to do, but that's what I'm going to get out of bed, doing the wrongest thing I possibly can. People don't do that. Nobody does that. But people do get out of bed saying, I'm going to figure out for myself what is right, what is good, what is true, what is noble. And when people do that, imagine what would the roadways be like if everybody said, I'm going to figure out the right way to drive. Nobody else is going to tell me where to drive or how to drive or how fast to drive it would be, well, kind of like a lot of our roads are, right? Chaos. <laughs> Chaos. There, there has to be structure. There has to be someone saying, no, 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 this is right. This is wrong. This is where you drive. This is how you drive. And when everybody is trying to do what is right in their own eyes, when everybody's trying to seize the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil for themselves, then thorns are the result. So again, we see the Garden of Eden and the fall just magnified. What was happening with two people in the garden is now happening with an entire nation of people, and it's also true of all of humanity. Everyone throughout the world does what is right in their own eyes, is corrupt, and thorns and chaos are the result. So the people get progressively worse, um, and and God takes um, pity on them, raises up a savior, um, but again, they may reform for a while and then they fall away. I want you to see before we close how this book spirals to the very last story. And if you've never made it all the way through the book of Judges, I don't blame you in the least. It is, <laughs> it's awful. And I remember I was probably, I don't remember how old I was. By the time I, I read this last story of the Levite and, the, and his concubine. And I was like, is this really in the Bible? This is in the Bible. You couldn't make this into a movie. I mean, there's not a rating bad enough for it. This is horrible stuff. Judges chapter 19 and verse 22. Uh, Let me set that up for a second. So there's this Levite, right? From the tribe of Levi, supposed to be the priestly tribe. This Levite uh, who came to Gibeah, he, he actually chose Gibeah over Jerusalem because the Jebusites, the Gentiles, were living in Jerusalem at the time. And he said, we're too good to go to that Gentile city. We need to go to a city of Benjamin. We need to go to a city from the people of Israel. We're going to go to Gibeah because that's, that's where good God-fearing people are. So we're going to go to Gibeah. Were they good God-fearing people? He would have been better off going to the Gentile city for sure. Um, And so they go to the town square and nobody takes pity on him. Nobody offers him hospitality. They leave him and his concubine, which by the way is a slave wife, right? Um, Leave them out on the square, except this old man who brings them in and takes pity on them. So Judges 19 verse 22, as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, Surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. That we may have sex with him, right? Now, does this remind you of another story? What city does this remind you of? Sodom. And I think that's exactly what the author of Judges wants you to think of. This is an Israelite city. This is a city of Benjamin. And they are exactly like Sodom. What do they deserve for God to destruction, for God to rain down fire and brimstone on them? They they are corrupt to the uttermost. A visitor comes to town and instead of offering him hospitality and kindness, they want to rape him. This is what God's people have become because they have forgotten their covenant with God. They have become like the world. Verse 23, and the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now, violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. Sounds like exactly what happened in Sodom, by the way, doesn't it? Is this an even better, is this a better offer? Rape this, rape my daughter and and his slave wife? No. Again, reading the book of Judges, you're often wondering who's right, who's wrong. That'll leave you scratching your head all day long. The answer is nobody's right. It's corrupt from the beginning to the end. It is this downward spiral, verse 25. But the men would not listen to him. So the man, the man, the Levite man, seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up, this is verse uh, 27, And her master rose up in the morning and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, hold on a second, had he just been sleeping all night? I guess so. He was safe. What difference did it make that they were raping his slave wife all night long and she was lying nearly dead on the doorstep? He doesn't seem to care very much because he's on his way home and he goes out and he finds her there at the doorstep Behold, there was his concubine laying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home. This book should make us weep, weep. There is no righteousness. There is no goodness. This is what happens when people forget their covenant with God. Believe it or not, the story gets worse. Verse 29, and when he entered the house, he got back home, entered his house, he took a knife and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day, consider it take counsel and speak. He chopped her up and sent her to all the tribes of Israel and it kicked off a civil war and they went to war against Benjamin, against the tribe of Benjamin and nearly wiped out the entire tribe. Then they decided, oh no, we probably shouldn't have done that. And then they had to steal a bunch of wives to give to the people, to the men of Benjamin. It just keeps getting worse. They keep trying to fix their problems more and more and more and more sin and corruption over and over and over again, this downward spiral. And the judges, some of the people that we look up to, Samson, Gideon, we can look at these guys and say, okay, are these sort of the moral examples in the story? Some of the judges are, are just as bad, cowards, Womanizers, liars, vindictive, vengeful. The whole book leaves us longing for something more. Here's some things maybe that the book can teach us. Number one, people do what is right in their own eyes and chaos ensues. Is that any different today than it was then? No. Is it any different with you than it was with them? It's not any different with me. When I do what is right in my own eyes, I am a horrible judge of what is right and what is wrong. My heart, my feelings, my flesh is not a good indicator of what is right and wrong. If I don't have the Lord to guide me, I do go wrong. And given enough time and the right or the wrong situations, we could do all kinds of things and chaos ensues because when you pursue your interests and I pursue my interests and then a hundred other people are pursuing their own interests, we're all clashing with each other. Chaos, thorns in our sides. So number two, people need a king, right? People need a king. That's what the whole book of Judges says over and over again. There's no king in Israel. There's no king in Israel. People need a king. But both the story of scripture and our own experience teaches us that human rulers are at best a temporary solution, aren't they? I mean, maybe they make it better for a bit, but then people keep going back to doing what they were doing before, or even the king himself does what is evil or does what is right in his own eyes, and hurts and oppresses and attacks people? At best, a temporary solution. Maybe he can kind of curb some of the chaos, but arguably the pain and suffering that these worldly kings cause is even worse than everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. So, So it leaves us with this paradox, doesn't it? On the one hand, the people need a king, but on the other hand, the king's always make things horrible. We have an answer for that paradox, don't we? We have an answer for that. But finally, fourth, God's justice is gracious and merciful. And Aren't we thankful for that? That God's justice is gracious and merciful. So all four of these areas kind of leave us with this sort of paradox scratching our heads saying, one, people do what is right in their own eyes and chaos ensues. People need a king, but kings are often just as bad as the people that they rule over. And God is merciful. God's justice is merciful. So what will this just and merciful God do to help these people that continually do what is wrong, what is right in their own eyes. So Judges leaves us longing for, one, a changed heart. I know that's what I need. How about you? A changed heart. And as you follow the story of Israel throughout the Hebrew scriptures, you find that that's the problem. Their heart is made of stone and they need a heart of flesh. That no matter, no matter what the rules are, It's not going to make a difference unless their heart is changed. Same is true for you and I. No matter what the rules are, we'll continually go wrong until our heart is changed by the coming of a spirit. And not only does it leave us longing for a changed heart, it leaves us longing for a better king. A better king. A king that is one of us, but not one of us. A king who is our brother, but also a king who is God. Do you see how the book of Judges, even this horrible, horrible book that leaves us weeping, it leaves us longing for something that only the gospel can answer? Something that Jesus can only answer. Jesus brings us a changed heart, and he is a better king. And aren't we so thankful? And doesn't this story make us recognize ourselves and say, "I, I am the people of Israel? I I do what is right in my own eyes and chaos ensues. I need a better king and I need a change of heart. Let's pray. Father God, these stories of the book of Judges are horrendous. And our heart breaks for the blood that was shed, for the tears that were wept, for the lives that were destroyed because of sin. And Father, we weep because we know we too are guilty and we have contributed to the blood being shed. We have contributed to the tears being wept. We have contributed to the lives being destroyed. But Father, Jesus has come and Father, in him we rejoice because he through the spirit has changed our hearts and he is our better king. Father, we pray that you Help us to allow our hearts to continue to be transformed and help our knees to continually bend. Help us to give our loyalty and allegiance to King Jesus. We pray these things in his name, amen.